Hi, good morning. All right, so as you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 today, verses 12 through 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. We've known each other since freshman year of college here at the University of Illinois. We've been together, all friends, for all that time. Um, We spent time here doing ministry together, spent time in China doing ministry together, um, and now Scott and his family live in Plainfield, Illinois, he's a pastor of an Acts 29 church. We, we wanted to get Scott up here because we love Scott, we love Scott's heart, he's a man of God, and we love the way that he preaches God's word. I know you're going to be blessed by him, so welcome him up right now. Good morning, Christ community. The saints in Plainfield, Illinois send greetings. If you're not sure where that is, it's... Um, sort of between Joliet and Aurora. Uh, we were happy to have Craig preach at our church a couple months ago, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. Uh, I have uh, known Craig for a while. My wife Sarah and I are good friends with the Cody's. I also, like many of you, have benefited from the ministry of Scott Berkey. Um, also, I've met Nate, uh, got to know each other at a preaching workshop earlier this year, and then... Um, Pat and I have known each other since fifth grade, actually, though we were very different people then. Uh, Well, let me get us started with some prayer. Our great God, we want your spirit to be our true teacher this morning, but we know that there are a lot of things that could get in the way of that. We all have just garbage we're dealing with in our lives. Maybe it's sin, maybe it's circumstances that have us weighed down and you care about that and you are dealing with that but it also threatens the 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 evil one would use that to keep us and our thoughts outside of this room we pray that that wouldn't happen also I'm new I look strange I might sound strange I pray that none of that would matter but rather that you would focus us like a laser on your life-giving words this morning And we pray this so that Jesus Christ would look very, very good in our midst. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I know you just finished preaching through 1 Corinthians. So I'm very excited today to preach to you from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is in many ways Paul's most personal letter. It's one where he's really vulnerable. He really opens himself up particularly about the nature of Christian ministry. And that's very relevant with the the two couples that are being sent out today. 
uh, to think about the nature of Christian ministry. And we need to think about the nature of it also because of the culture that we live in. Because church leaders are under fire in our culture, aren't they? Some of them rightly so. Some of them, it's the, the focus is finally getting to their removal, maybe like a desperately needed appendectomy. But some church leaders are under fire in a wrong way, a way that looks more like self-righteous grumblers orchestrating a soundbites-driven character assassination. So what is the godly pastor to do? And how do we know the difference? How does one lead strongly in the right things, as Scripture says we must, and yet at the same time navigate the fact that strong leadership is often abused, and often any hint of strength is likely to trigger some people and raise opposition? Does the pastor need a PR department? Should the pastor just resign himself to being muted and and always inoffensive, even if that means leaving the sheep vulnerable to wolves? How does the sincere minister of the gospel navigate this confusion? In 2 Corinthians, we get Paul's defense of his own ministry. There were a number of accusations against him that he was confused, he was a basket case, he was not true to his word in different ways. And so he explains the ethos of his own apostleship. And we'll see that the principles he unpacks also relate to anyone in Christian ministry and at some level to every Christian because after all every Christian is supposed to be on mission we're representing Christ to this world and so today we are going to talk about the sense of smell a sense of smell it's been said that the sense of smell maybe more than anything any other sense is powerful to evoke memories to latch on to precise associations smells can draw us to good things Studies have proven that that smell has a lot to do with the subconscious attraction of couples to one another. Or think about how the smell of a good home-cooked meal draws you in, both so that your body gets nourishment, but also so that you get relationship at the same time. Those are good smells. Smells can also repel us from dangerous situations. They can warn us, like... Mold, decay, disease, poison, even explosives. Have you ever wondered how Christians smell to the world around us? How do Christians smell? Of course, I'm speaking metaphorically. But how do we smell to those outside of the faith? And should our goal be to always be well thought of, to always smell good? If so, what sort of personal presentation, what sort of perfume if you will, would do that trick to attract them. And the question of what kind of aroma the Christ follower should give off was really important for Paul to walk through with the Corinthian church. Uh, If you remember in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul had to call the church, he had to call them out for being worldly. They were puffed up, they were tribalistic, they were self-promoting. And we see in 2 Corinthians that apparently those tendencies had only gotten worse. You see, some in the church at Corinth had lost interest in Paul, their spiritual father, because he wasn't as flashy or as poised or as eloquent as some other teachers who had come into town. And these new teachers were, well, imagine the first century version of internet influencers. They were masters of the insincere smile, impressive connections, 
hip wardrobes, just dripping with sweet spiritual words that actually had their own worldly success as the ultimate goal. And later in the book, Paul is going to sarcastically refer to these guys as super apostles. And Paul didn't make the the comparison any easier on his end because he was a man particularly marked by unimpressive appearance. He was unavoidably unstable in his ministry plans. He seemed to collect horrific experiences of suffering. There was nothing polished or outwardly compelling about his ministry. And what he wanted the Corinthians to learn, and what the Holy Spirit wants us to learn today, is that true ambassadors of Christ will be marked by the path of the cross. What we're going to see is that we are meant to bring the shocking fragrance of Christ, the suffering servant, to those around us. And then to trust God with the results. Well, first, let's think about what kind of shame and confusion and pain Paul had experienced at the time of this letter. If anyone had frequent opportunities to despair of life itself, it was the Apostle Paul. He lists many of those in uh, chapters 12 and 13 of this book. He says, okay, you want me to boast about my credentials like these super apostles do? Okay, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. And he talks about five times receiving 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, once stoned and left for dead, three times shipwrecked, frequently in danger on travels without food, suffering from cold and exposure. And there was his thorn in the flesh, which we think might be some sort of chronic sickness. And if all these problems weren't disgraceful enough for the Corinthians... He also throws in something laughably undignified. And he says, oh yeah, uh, at Damascus the governor was trying to seize me. But I was let down the wall in a basket. It's hardly a specimen of dignity. And Paul implies that the hardest struggle wasn't dealing with these embarrassments and humiliations. Actually, the hardest thing was the daily pressure of concern for the churches that resulted even in sleepless nights. He asks, who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? And we see this anxiety that he carried with him playing out in these first verses that we're going to look at this morning. We read, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So we can reconstruct the situation he's talking about from the rest of 2 Corinthians. The church in Corinth was on the brink of selling out to just giving themselves to the pursuit of this, of an image that kind of meshed with the expectations of wealthy Corinth. And Paul had written a harsh letter to rebuke them. And he's waiting at Troas for Titus to report back to him on how the letter of rebuke was received. And in chapter 7, we learn that Paul did later find Troas, uh, find Titus, not at Troas, but rather in Macedonia. And the, the news was good, in fact, that a majority of the church at Corinth had repented and only a minority of those at Corinth needed to be confronted here in the later chapters of 2 Corinthians. But in these verses, 12 and 13, Paul is recounting the time before he knew 
about Titus's trip to Corinth and how it had turned out. And he couldn't bear the thought that they might be making a shipwreck of their faith. So Paul finds himself in this situation, in, in this new ministry in Troas, where his gospel proclamation is actually bearing fruit. It's actually starting to bring in a harvest. People are coming to faith. But there's a problem. Paul simply can't focus. He needs to find Titus. He needs to hear the news about Corinth. And so he leaves. What do we make of that? What was Paul to make of that? Did he do wrong by leaving the church at Troas? Almost like a doctor walking away right when the baby is about to be born. And that question is just a hint of the confusion and the raw emotions that were normal for Paul's life. Maybe you've experienced confusion of that type as well. I can think of so many examples in my own life. Should I have spent more time with this group of people? Was I living in the most strategic location? Did I not speak clearly enough about Jesus? Or did I force the conversation and did I come across as an unloving proselytizer? How do I balance all these things? How do I balance ministry to my family and ministry to the church? You know, some people like to think that being in Christ always means that that you know exactly what God wants of you and wants to accomplish in any given situation, and that just hasn't been my experience. Now, sometimes God's guidance can be uncanny and super clear in its direction, but most of the time, I think it pleases God to let his word shape our minds and to answer our prayers for wisdom without us necessarily knowing that he's answered those prayers at the time when the decision needs to be made. And I think that that actually builds our faith probably more than even an audible answer from God would. So, if you're a decisions perfectionist, you you just obsess about always getting it right, I hope that you will learn to rest in the fact that our God sees your desire to please him and he is guiding you as you sincerely pray for direction, even if, like Paul here, you feel uncertain and and maybe you're accused by others of, of lacking direction or commitment. And on the other hand, if you're one of those who speaks as if every single thing you do was God's specific leading, and I want to say this gently, I hope you'll shift to more helpful language. Maybe instead of God told me, you could say something like, I'm discerning that such and such would please the Lord, or I think he's guiding me in this direction. Because that sort of language seems to be more in line with what I'm seeing most of the time in the New Testament. God's ambassadors do have confidence that God is guiding them, and that doesn't mean, though, that it's not agonizing sometimes. The process isn't seemingly ambiguous, especially when so much is at stake in building up Christ's church. And every change of plans is used by enemies to paint you as unstable or unreliable. So how should Paul process this confusion and this emotional suffering? He answers in the following verses. Verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the knowledge of him everywhere. What exactly is Paul thanking God for here? To our 21st century 
American ears, it might sound like Paul is thanking Christ for giving him victory even in hard circumstances. But we need to dig a little bit deeper because the concept here isn't easily translatable from the Greek. When you're translating ancient documents, it's not as simple as just comparing dictionaries and then there you go. Uh, Let me give you an example. Imagine that 1,500 years from now, someone finds an ancient American document that speaks about Mardi Gras. Now they note that it's, um, it's, it's not quite English, so they, they pull out a, a French lexicon and they write down Fat Tuesday. And they assume that, okay, maybe this is a special day when people just eat rich foods. But they would have no context from which to understand its Roman Catholic origins or that it had morphed into this celebration, particularly notable in New Orleans for costumes and parades and licentiousness. So some words just require you to go back into the culture to better understand them. Another term like that might be Super Bowl, right? You find some document hundreds of years from now about this. They, they all gathered for the Super Bowl. What is that? Did they, did they have like this giant bowl of soup or, or a salad or something and they all gathered as a community to, to eat that together? No. So similarly, we have a specialized meaning here with the term triumphal procession in this text. The triumphal procession was a special parade in ancient Rome. It was used to celebrate the victory of Roman generals over the empire's foes. And from the founding of Rome until Paul's time, there there were about 300 of these processions. What would happen is everyone in the city would turn out to see the triumphant general leading the way in a chariot and he was dressed in a purple toga and his face was painted red and he had an eagle-topped scepter in his hand and his fellow soldiers carried exhibits with them of the spoils of war that had been won or illustrations of of battles that, that had happened. But the unique verb used here of being led in triumphal procession That was the plight of the prisoners of war. They were dragged along in chains while the crowd beat and mocked them. And all of this was for the purpose of thanking the God who had supposedly given the Roman general the victory. And this thanksgiving was expressed in part through fragrant incense that was spread along the parade route, spread by the prisoners themselves. And the procession would then lead to Jupiter's temple and it was there that most of the captives in the triumphal procession would be sold into slavery. But the leaders of the defeated ones would instead be slaughtered as a sacrifice to the pagan god to the great excitement of the crowd. And all of these things, the the richness of the spoils, the stories of the battles, the strength of the prisoners, the humiliation of the conquered rulers, this was all meant to display the glory and the sovereignty of Rome and its gods, or sometimes of the deified emperor himself. So we see that Paul here is borrowing this imagery to speak of himself as being led in triumphal procession. It's not an expression of triumphalism, like, yeah, we win in Jesus. No, he's he's actually describing himself as being dragged along in chains. You see, Paul had always remembered that in his pre-Christian life, he had been Christ's enemy. And then, on the Damascus Road, Christ confronted him Paul was conquered and then with 
Paul's commissioning in the book of Acts, Jesus said of him, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So now Paul considers triumphal procession to be a fitting image to describe his apostleship. He is on shameful and painful public display. He's going wherever Christ leads him until the time comes when he will be a sacrifice slaughtered for the glory of God. It's a striking image, don't you think? More than any other figure in church history, the Apostle Paul was dragged along in chains. He was paraded before the whole Greco-Roman Empire um, until tradition tells us that, that he was beheaded at Nero's command. And this isn't the only time that Paul has used imagery like this in his writings. In Colossians 2.15, he speaks about how God at the cross disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and made a shameful public display of them by triumphing over them, that same concept of a, of a triumphal procession. And this isn't the first time that Paul has referred to himself as the conquered one. Frequently he refers to himself as the slave of Christ. And at the end of Philemon, Paul describes Epaphras literally as my fellow prisoner of war in Jesus Christ. And Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, you might remember this passage, he said... I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are held in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We have become and still are like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. Now what makes Paul different from those being led in a Roman triumphal procession is that he himself is actually thanking God. This is how he makes sense of his pain and his shame, his emotional distress. He says, thank God that this is not purposeless. But rather this is making Christ's victory known through my disgrace. That fragrance of Christ is always being spread through Paul in every place. Even the most mundane of his efforts or senseless of his struggles is used by God to produce that fragrance. Paul's weakness in this world is the very thing that makes the power of God in the gospel manifest to the world. And the big so what for this whole passage are those first words of verse 14. But thanks be to God. Paul's giving thanks because even though his ministry sometimes feels like a a misunderstood basket case of a nervous wreck who can hardly function, it's all serving to send out the aroma of Christ's suffering. For what should you be giving thanks? A botched attempt to share your story of faith? A ruined relationship? Because you clumsily dared to bring Christ into it? You're getting kicked off the club sports team because Sunday mornings were non-negotiable for your family? Maybe the discovery that your co-workers are gossiping about you because of your offensive worldview? The applications could be endless. Good grief, I, I wish that I knew about this passage when I was an awkward Christian in high school. Like, 
wow, it's supposed to be like this. I'm supposed to feel misunderstood and, and weak and, and uncertain uh, about what's the best way to honor him. It's all part of God's conforming you to the way of weakness. It's like a pageant showing the utter triumph of Christ in your life to a watching world. And instead of buckling under a wrong sense of shame when the cool kids say you should be embarrassed, thank God for the discomfort because you know that this triumphal procession is actually the reality in the spiritual realm. Now, I don't know where this hits you exactly. Maybe, maybe your efforts to care for someone else in Christ's name directly challenge this culture's priority or maybe your spouse left and your grown kids resent you because of your new faith maybe you feel like you're unable to even have an outward focus in your life at all right now because god has led you through some personal tragedy a tragedy that maybe you think well a god who wants to win people would would certainly spare his own from something like that right but no just like paul God's people will always be a spectacle to the watching world. Yet we can navigate humiliation in the service of God when we understand the bigger picture. Think about your specific encounters of pain and thank him for what he's up to. Even through the most confusing of them, none of it is wasted. And I want to spend a bit more time on this just to make sure everyone understands that Christ can and does use your awkward personal frailties. He also uses your moral failures once they are brought into the light and repented of. And he uses the tragedies and the deep sufferings that befall us in this broken world. These weaknesses all shine as like a giant magnifying glass on the victory of the Son of God. And when the dying world sees a repentant person who's not discarded by their family or church because of adultery or addiction, but rather they're supported into a new transparent life, that is a beautiful aroma of weakness made powerful by Christ alone. Or when a dying world sees a Christian brought low through an agonizing battle with cancer and the medical debt that comes with it, see them brought to the end of themselves, but not crushed, And instead to see their joy in sorrow and their community surrounding them with the care and the comfort of Christ. That is a stunning and perplexing aroma to see in a lonely and broken world. And when you see a Christian stubbornly push past their stutter or their social anxiety to befriend and share Christ with a co-worker, that is an intriguing aroma indeed. See, we're all hopelessly insecure and alone and broken without Christ. So for a dying world to see themselves in our stories, experiencing the transformation of Christ from shame to glory, from condemnation to welcome, from crushing despair to joyful hope in a new creation, that is a fragrance that has the power to give life. But here's the thing. If we're too respectable to display that weakness then no meaningful fragrance will spread. And we see more clearly the implications of this shameful parade when we go down to verse 15. It says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now this talk of an aroma, it's not a new metaphor, it's just a continuation of the Roman triumph imagery. 
because a cloud of incense would accompany that parade and, and there'd also be the fragrance of flowers along the way. So the exotic aromas would grab the attention of everyone along the parade route. And that's exactly how our Christ-like weaknesses captivate all who observe our lives. So I want us to see that Paul's experience is not unlike your experience because Paul's conversion is not unlike your conversion, right? We all have a a Damascus Road experience where Christ confronted us as his enemy, but as we call him Lord, he commissions us to suffer for his name and he spreads the fragrance of the gospel through what feels like our day-to-day death in this world. And so if you're a faithful witness here in Champaign-Urbana, the reaction may be mixed, but it won't be unnoticed. And the image you give off won't be polished. Social ostracism, public humiliation, economic uncertainty, heavy concern for the church, even the wearing down of your body can result when we simply try to live consistent Christian lives. So if this is the reality, does that mean that God takes pleasure in our pain? No. Ultimately, God takes no pleasure in our experiences of weakness, but that doesn't mean that trial and tribulation and pain aren't the appointed way for every Christian. We need to remember that the Lord Jesus isn't just the conquering general who was leading the prisoners in triumphal procession. He first walked this shameful parade himself to his own death, In obedience to the Father, he was in the shameful procession and he had the sin of his people on his shoulders making him the spectacle of the ages at whom we have all hurled contempt. And Jesus says to those who would follow him, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Time and time again in the New Testament, we are told that those who follow Christ must suffer with him. But it's not in vain. Chapter 4 reminds us this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us the eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. This is the way of enduring joy. For Paul, Christ in his sufferings is the model of ministry. Now, of course, only the sufferings of Jesus brought about salvation for his people, but our sufferings as his people also present salvation in an effective way to others. They're not just hearing the message of the gospel, they're seeing the message of the gospel as they see us in our weakness. So we share in Jesus' death, but always also in the promise of sharing in Jesus' resurrection. And in this sense, our suffering actually is pleasing to the Father. It's pleasing because we smell like Jesus. That's why it's pleasing to the Father. Just as the fragrant incense along the Roman triumphal processions announced the conqueror's victory, and just as the burnt offerings in the Jewish temple were a pleasing aroma to God, in the same way, we, in Jesus' footsteps, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And then that worship is more than just words. It's, it's like this pleasantly aromatic incense to our God who sees Jesus in us. So we know that this death parade ministry is pleasing to God, but what does it accomplish horizontally among people? For some, verse 16 says, it's a fragrance 
from death to death. In other words, those destined for eternity apart from God, unfortunately, will only be confirmed in judgment by their rejection of our living testimony. Our smell will seem to them like the stench of garbage or rotting flesh. Try as we might to winsomely point them to Christ, some will only be repelled by the smell of our Savior, the Savior that they delight in hating. But for others, they will smell something strangely sweet. It'll remind them of a home that they never had. It'll be like a delicacy that they never before knew how to crave. But now, they are awakened. Because for them, it was an aroma from life to life. The proclamation of Christ through suffering is like a strong fragrance. It's unseen yet powerful, and it forces all who encounter it to choose a side. And that fact, the aroma glorifies God by splitting humanity. That can be agonizing. We had some British friends, uh, my wife and I, worked in Uzbekistan for a time and uh, we had some British friends the woman was an incredible evangelist she was totally fluent in the language and fully enculturated and so she gained entrance to so many women's homes and befriended them they, they just loved her in the capital city she saw so much fruit in her ministry well then she and her husband decided to move across the mountains to a remote valley and there she was a spectacle. She was um, welcomed because she knew the language and she looked like them and acted like them. But when she started to confess Christ, when she invited them to read the Bible with her, none were willing to weigh the scriptures against their folk Islam traditions. And so soon she found herself the object of cruel gossip and, and horrific rumors. And that led to many tears. It was not enjoyable for her to be the aroma from death to death. And yet what she learned was that she must also thank God for this. Her proclamation was not doing nothing. It was glorifying God even in this result of how it divided humanity and resulted in death to death for some. But there is no third reaction to this aroma because everyone is in the business of being saved or of perishing. And the message that we bear as we're led about by God, it it divides hearers into one of those two groups. So we see that Paul's gospel never leaves hearers unaffected. And that in itself is evidence that he didn't need to play this game of the super apostles. He didn't need to make himself flashy and and catch their eye and... um, And be like an entertainer so that they'd hear the gospel? No, his message was getting everyone's attention. A lot of people hated it. But many in Corinth received the gospel through his ministry of weakness. Others just saw him as a suffering lunatic. And they rejected him. And in doing that, they rejected the suffering Messiah whom he represented. And so the weight of this reality just causes Paul to cry out in verse 16. He says, who is sufficient for these things? Who can be the bearer of such a potent message? And Paul's going to answer that question down in chapter 3, verse 5. But for now, we're just meant to linger over what seems like a rhetorical question. Of course, no one in and of themselves is worthy or adequate to bear this message. 
Do you feel the weight of it? What if you walked into a stadium full of people and half of them erupted into eternal joy that would only increase forever and then the other half of the stadium just dropped down dead? That would be a lot to handle. So what then is Paul? And how are the Corinthians to think about this seemingly sad and battered man? Instead of seeing him as a pathetic and defeated figure, disqualified from honor because of his sufferings, as some appear to have been saying, they needed to understand that the sovereign God was leading his suffering apostle in this glorious but tortuous triumphal parade, spreading the aroma of the knowledge of Christ through his preaching wherever he went, dividing humanity into those being saved and those perishing. And in verse 17, we see that unlike those who are concerned with success in this world, so unlike those who are mere peddlers of God's word, Paul speaks with sincerity. Sincerity. He loves the Corinthians. He believes what he's saying. And he's also been sent with a message that is from God. It's not from himself. He speaks before God. He's mindful that God sees and hears all and will hold him accountable on the day of judgment. And he speaks in Christ, not according to his own merit, but only as one whose life derives from this shamefully crucified but risen Savior. And that unity with Christ just can't be faked because it rejoices in tribulation And it makes us totally different from those who minister for a safe and stable profession or for the perks of respectability or notoriety in this world. So let's return to our main thought. As we follow in the footsteps of Christ's weaknesses, we bring the shocking aroma of his suffering to those around us. And that, in turn, erupts into eternal joy for many. And a big implication of that is that people are not going to come to Christ because you're so put together. Have you noticed that? The lives of Christ's ambassadors are often messier, often more emotional. They're not manicured, they're not collected. Being a Christian doesn't lead to physical or emotional safety. If you're following Christ, you can't obsess over your own appearance because you'll lose sight of it in service to others. You can't protect your future because Christ may call you to give up those plans. You can't protect your dignity because the gospel you speak is foolish and offensive to the world around you. Now, it's good to be winsome as far as we're able to. We certainly don't want to put any unnecessary obstacles in front of the gospel. But neither do we want to sugarcoat it and pretend that following the suffering servant results in your best life now. Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead so you could have perfectly white teeth or political victory, whatever that means to you. Or freedom from heartache. He came so that your heart could ache for the right things. And the world could learn to worship as it watches that transformation. It's kind of like those old scratch and sniff books or stickers. I don't know if you remember those. I think they were popular in the 80s. Um, but you, you rub your fingernail across that picture of, of flowers or an apple pie or a pickle. And then you smell that. Or at least an imitation version of that. But um, it's like that with us. When we are rubbed with the hard edge of discomfort and disorientation, it's then that our true smell comes out. 
And that means that someone who is persistently guarded from discomforts or disorientation, they are not going to give off the smell of Christ. Not very strongly anyway. That's true for all of us. And that means it's true even more for those in church leadership. Would you rather have elders and deacons who are often awkward, uncertain, not poised because they've been willing to follow Christ into pain and confusion? Or would you rather have the cool leaders that draw people just with the way they carry themselves? In the end, the problem with picture-perfect, always poised, always inspired, never weak Christians is that they don't actually point us to God. They point us to themselves as some sort of mini-God. And they certainly don't point us to God the Son who took on our weaknesses and walked in our awkwardness and had no stately form or majesty that we should regard Him. So may we all seek to walk in those footsteps, as J.I. Packer put it, knowing that weakness is the way. Weakness is the way. And then through our occasional confusion and brokenheartedness and trusting God with our authentic blemishes, we'll see that God really does spread the aroma of his life to those around us. And for that, we will give thanks forever. So our great God, we ask that these truths would hit our hearts, that they would break our hearts, that we would uh, put behind us the ways of the peddlers of your word. I ask that we would be willing to be weak. I ask that we would have this sort of standard for our leaders. That we would look for people, we would follow people as they follow Christ in weakness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.